Would you please be seated, friends, and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And for continuity's sake, I would like to read verses 16 uh, through 41. And this is the entirety of the sermon that Paul would preach uh, to those in the synagogue. And so we read in verse 16. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. This is the Lord's word. If you'll bow with me, friends, let's seek again the Lord's blessing. Again, our Father, we thank you for this night, and we thank you for this word, and pray that your blessing be upon your servant and upon these people uh, here in this place and those who may be joining from afar. 
We ask, Father, that you would um, make this passage plain to us, make it clear, and let the import of it be felt in every bosom, that we would esteem the Lord Jesus and look to him alone. Oh, we thank you for your kindnesses to us. And now we pray, O Lord, that the name of Christ would be magnified. And we ask this in his name. Amen. As you will recall, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch are given an opportunity to exhort both the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And as we pointed out several weeks back, Paul does not waste this God-given opportunity on pointless matters. Uh, But rather, he preaches to these people the gospel, the one subject that, if disregarded, leads to eternal condemnation and misery. But if believed, it leads to an abundant life. And the apostle, when he begins this gospel presentation, remember, he's speaking in a synagogue, so he's speaking primarily to Jews, but also to God-fearers. And God-fearers were those who... They're they're convinced that there's something here with Judaism, but they're not so convinced that they would go ahead and get themselves circumcised. But they're there. They listen to the law of Moses. They, they, They watch what happens. They're listening, and they know there's something very significant here about this Jewish religion. So the apostle, he begins where the gospel begins. And we oftentimes believe or are told that the gospel begins in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's not true. The gospel begins in Genesis. It's a wonderful thing. If you ever think about this, all 66 books are pointing to the same thing. Just like every book, you should never start a book in the middle of a book. (laughs) You start at the beginning and you work through it. And that's what Paul does. He starts here at the very beginning. He starts with this Old Testament survey, pointing out to them and to us that the gospel has its foundation in the Old Testament and it's rooted in the grace and promise of God. The gospel is not about man making good decisions or decisions for himself. The gospel is not about man. It's not about you and me. right? We've heard people say this before, that the gospel is not your testimony. And, and have you heard that? The gospel is not your testimony. Your testimony is not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. Your testimony is what Jesus Christ has done for you. But notice Paul doesn't get up and give his testimony he gives up, gets up and he speaks about what God has said he was going to do. And he starts here talking about what God has done. Notice again that he points out from the Old Testament that it was God who chose our fathers. It was God who made the people great. It was God who led them out of Egypt. It was God who cared for and put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness. It was God who destroyed the nations. It was God who distributed the land to them as an inheritance. It was God who gave them judges and a king who would lead them in the ways of the Lord. It was God um, who had done all of these things, all of this, despite the fact that they, the people, were wicked and rebellious. Beloved, this is the picture that the Apostle Paul paints for these people. Look at all the things that the Lord has done in spite of what our fathers were like. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. You've heard people say this before. Here the gospel is what God has done for the sinner, not what we do for God. And and he goes even further to point out that the Lord is faithful because that which he has promised, he has also fulfilled. God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus, just as he said he would do. Now, this Jesus is the focus 
of the remainder of the service, of, of the sermon that the Apostle Paul is preaching. He points out that Jesus Christ is the focus of the message of the gospel. Again, listen to verses 26 through 31. He, he now becoming a little more intimate with these people. He says, brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Again, the focus of the gospel is upon Jesus Christ and what he has done. The things that have been presented and promised of old, again, to us, the message, he says, of this salvation has been sent. Sent to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, sent to us, to the Jew, and to the Gentile who fears God. And so the question arises, well, if this Jesus Christ is really exactly who you say he is, how come everyone in Jerusalem appeared to hate him? How come the the most astute people in all of Israel All of these Pharisees, all of these scholars, how could they all get it wrong? And and you are here telling us about this Jesus Christ. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Why should we believe what you are saying? Why should we we believe these things? No doubt that those who were there had heard that Jesus Christ uh, was rejected in Jerusalem. And so the apostle here, he's recounting the attitude towards Jesus Christ and why those who rejected him were wrong. And he says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Those in Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus says this on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. They don't recognize, and this is what Paul is saying, they don't recognize him. He did not fit their presuppositions of what a Messiah should be, right? What was the Jewish understanding of them? He's going to come, he's going to deliver us, he's going to be great, he's going to establish his kingdom, he's going to throw off Roman rule, he's going to flex, and we're going to see his muscles, and he's going to be great. And who is this Jesus, meek and mild, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt? Real impressive. They had a presupposition of about what the Messiah would be and should be. We want a robust Messiah, one that will push against uh, this Roman rule. And they did not recognize the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath. My friends, when you have something stuck in your mind, it is awfully hard to see it any other way. They had the voice of the prophets, but as is so often the case, um, we input... Uh, or rather import our beliefs into the scripture rather than drawing our beliefs from the scripture. You ever done that? Surely this is what the scripture's teaching because this is what I've always been told the scriptures teach. But if you stand back and you look at the scripture and you start um, exegeting it, that is drawing from the text, the truth of the text, you find out, oh, 
I may need to change my understanding of this particular subject or theology because it's not at all what the scriptures are teaching. They had no room in their theology. Even though the voice of the prophets uh, spoke of a suffering servant, they, they could not see it. They really are without excuse because the scriptures speak quite pointedly of a suffering Messiah, uh, and yet uh, one who would at the same time be a savior. So if you'll turn with me, because I'm not just making stuff up, uh, Isaiah 52, verses 13 and following. You know, you know this passage. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were uh, astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this, his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grace was a, or grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he, as he, will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This explicitly speaks of a suffering Messiah, of a suffering Savior, and the Jews know this. They know this. The scriptures are plain, and yet in their theology they had no room for a suffering Savior. And that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. And that's exactly what he came to do. They did not recognize him. Nor did they recognize or know the utterances of the prophets which were read every Sabbath, Paul says. And their rulers fulfilled these prophetic words by condemning him. The very things that they thought they knew and thought that they were avoiding were the very things they ended up doing to Jesus Christ. And Paul is making this point 
to all of these Jews sitting there who are questioning, how could they all get it wrong? It's because they did not listen. They didn't recognize. They would not acknowledge. They imported their presuppositions on what a savior should be rather than letting the scriptures speak for themselves. J.A. Alexander says, The conduct of the Jews at home in Jerusalem, far from discrediting the claims of Jesus, had confirmed them by contributing to verify the prophecies respecting him. Furthermore, says the apostle, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. They had a righteous man unjustly put to death. Friends, that's evil. Pilate found no guilt in him. The Jews chose Barabbas, a homicidal political terrorist, to be set free. Not because they loved Barabbas, but because they despised Jesus that much. And they would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. He was publicly humiliated, beaten, and executed on a Roman cross. And Paul says, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, that is the prophet's words, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. His suffering and death fulfilled the words of scripture. He really died, was removed from the cross, and was truly placed in a tomb. Now this is an exceedingly important point. His death was necessary. The scriptures foretold it. But my friends, everyone dies. Everyone dies. Except Enoch and Elijah who were taken up without seeing death. Every great man, every revolutionary, every religious leader has died or will die. It is significant that our Savior died because he bore our sin on Calvary's cross. But if this is possible to say, what is even greater than his death on the cross is the fact that he was raised from the dead. And that is quantifiably um, sets us apart as, as a faith, as the Bible's religion, as the truth, is that everyone else dies, but only one has risen again from the dead. That's a fact. It's a fact. And so... The apostle says, but God raised him from the dead. In fact, the apostle says it four times in verse 30, 33, 34, and 37. Four times in a few verses, he says, and he was raised. He was raised. He will state that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. And wherever, friends, the, the, the scriptures repeat something like that four times, he, was, he is raised, he was raised, he was raised, he was raised. It's because the author, and here in this instance it's Paul, preaching is making a very significant point. You cannot, the gospel is not just about Jesus Christ dying. It's about him being raised from the dead. That's a significant point. That's what sets him apart from every other religious leader that has ever lived in the history of, of, of this earth. Death has come into the world because of sin. What then does it mean, friends, when we see death being undone, when we see death reversed? This is significant. Paul would write in Romans 4, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And commentators said, Christ's death and resurrection are two aspects of one saving work. In the first part, Christ bore the legal penalty for our guilt. 
and the second he rose from the dead, his resurrection confirming that his death was a sufficient and effective offering for sin, pleasing the supreme judge. And not only did he rise from the dead, but he was seen by many people. It wasn't just wishful thinking, says Paul. It's not a hallucination that a couple of guys had after drinking mushroom juice. These people actually saw Jesus Christ. You could turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 5-8, and Paul spells out there in order, in detail, historical fact. These are the people who saw Jesus Christ rise from the dead. Paul writes, And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Yes, the people in Jerusalem rejected Jesus Christ. Yes, they did not recognize him. They did not heed the words of the prophets. Unjustly, they put him to death. But he was raised from the dead. This is a fact. A fact in, in which you shouldn't reject. Because he was raised. And this takes us to verse 32 through 37. Notice what, uh, what Paul says as he continues to preach. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. My friends, Paul, as he is preaching this, makes it very plain that the message that they preach is the promise that was made to the fathers. This is, again, steeped in the Old Testament, in the promise of God and what he said he was going to do. What he has spoken to them, he affirms, is that which they, he and Barnabas, preached to them, namely that the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, that is, to their children and spiritual children of Abraham, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. It's what God promised. What were these promises? And again, he's quoting from the Psalms, so they would have been written around the year uh, 1000 BC, or from Isaiah 700 BC. These are the things the prophets foretold. And so he is taking these Jews and he's saying, look at the scriptures. Look what the scriptures are saying and see that this Jesus Christ isn't absolutely the fulfillment of everything that all these prophets had ever foretold about. How could you deny these facts? The Lord said to David, remember this in 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Scholars believe that Paul uses this word to raise quite intentionally because it carried significance with the Jew who was very familiar with Psalm 2 as it was part of the liturgy, the liturgy of the synagogue service and the people had committed the words to memory. The verb raised when used in the general sense meant to bring forth. And so Paul points out, he's reciting here Psalm 2, and he says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. 
Among Christians of that era, said one commentator, this quotation applied unmistakably to Jesus, the Son of God. God brought forth his Son for the purpose of redeeming this sinful world. And what did Jesus say before his ascension to the right hand of the Father? He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ says of himself that I am the fulfillment of what is foretold in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a coronation song. And the particular citation is a decree of enthronement. The word choice tells the reader that the king is God himself who appoints a Davidic king to a royal office. But the wording informs the reader that this royal son of David is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so Psalm 2 is quoted so that the Jews would go, oh, this is exactly when Paul is saying he's been raised, he's been raised. Paul is saying this is actually fulfilling what the psalmist said in Psalm 2. Jesus Christ is the Davidic king that God has brought forth. He is the one who has been presented as the rightful king. A second promise he, he makes or brings forth is Isaiah 55, 3. For those who are not satisfied with what has been said so far, the apostle goes on to say, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now here Paul is quoting from the Septuagint, and he points out that Christ, being raised from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he secures for himself and for his people the holy and sure blessings of David. What are those? A permanent throne, a lasting dynasty, and that he would rule over the nations. And this, says Paul, is what Jesus Christ has done. And third, a third promise he brings forth from the psalm, Psalm 1610. He says that this, this resurrection, this idea that he that this Messiah would rise and he would never seek again decay is, is more than just mere implication drawn from the scriptures. The scriptures actually speak to this in Psalm 1610. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, he knew that even in death, if we go back to Psalm 16, even in death, God would be faithful. His dry bones will one day be resurrected, and he knew that. But the psalm has its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The psalm has its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul notes that David served his purpose, God's purpose, in his own generation. King David actually one day died. He was laid among his fathers and his body underwent decay. That's a fact. And again, the Jews knew this. The psalm does not have its fulfillment ultimately in David. Though it will, he will rise again on the final day when the trumpet, uh, is, is, the trumpet blast occurs. But the psalm itself points forward to Christ Jesus. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Understand this, friends, that when Christ was raised, he rose in order to die no more. Matthew Henry had this wonderful thing to say. I thought it was uh, really a beautiful thing. He says, Lazarus came out of the grave with his grave clothes still on because he was to use them again. But Christ, having no more occasion for them, left them behind. And it's interesting that the gospel writers actually note that he folded the linens and he rolled them up and put them where he laid. He's never going to have use of them again. That's the point. You see this? 
Jesus Christ rose. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he never dies again. He never goes back to the grave. What are you Jews thinking? Yes, we know that Jerusalem, they say that this is... Who's going to believe in a Jesus like this? But Paul is saying, mark my word, mark the word of these prophets. Everything they said has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the answer, God's yes to his promises. Jesus has fulfilled those promises. And he has conquered the sin, his resurrection. We see in him this reign. We can and must count upon Jesus Christ alone. He is our only hope. He is the fulfillment of God's promise of old and still is our only hope today. So Paul preaches this message. This is the gospel. This is what he does. And notice it's a historic event. It's not his testimony. It's just the facts of who Jesus Christ is and that he has fulfilled God's promise and what he said he would do when he pulled Abraham aside and said, can you count the stars can you count the, sea, the, the sand on the sea? Your descendants will be as numerous as that. I will give you a land, and you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You can see how Christ would fulfill that. Look around. Think of the Christians that the Lord is saving from among the nations. As numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, the Lord is doing this. And what is the land that we're ultimately promised it's not the land on the, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. It's the new heavens and it's the new earth. And every family on the earth is blessed because of Jesus Christ. And he reigns supreme. This is the truth. This is your Messiah. This is who you need to come to. Friends, you want to bless the Jews? Send them missionaries. Really. Send them missionaries. Send a missionaries who will, who will recite Psalm 2, who will recite Isaiah 55, or who will remind them that the Lord's anointed will not see decay from Psalm 16. Your Messiah has come. Stop with your presuppositions about who you think he is and understand who he is and what he's done. And so Paul brings this gospel message to these Jews and to these God-fearing people. What do you do with it? Like we heard this morning in Sunday school. Here's the therefore. Therefore, verse 38. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul is, is preaching the word, he has given them the facts. Now he does not allow them to stay with just understanding the facts. But now what are you going to do? The so what of the passage. What are you going to do with the truth of Jesus Christ? You're going to ignore it, or are you going to embrace it? Believe and be saved is, is where he urges them. He applies this truth to their lives, and he does not allow them to be neutral or indifferent to the truth. Because of what Christ has done, his being raised never to die again, fulfilling the promise of God, 
and receiving the holy and sure blessings of David, speaking to them as fellow Jews, they need to know that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is how you are made right with God. By having your sins dealt with. It is not, he does not bring a promise of prosperity, not a promise of health, not a promise of happy circumstances, but rather of the forgiveness of sins. This is what Paul holds out to these Jews, saying in verse 39, And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Through the law of Moses came the knowledge of sin. Here the Jews again are are resting in the fact that we're good Jews. We, we, we don't eat the, the wrong kinds of things. We only eat the right kinds of things. We're circumcised. We're ceremonially clean. We don't have paganism in our roots. We, don't, you know, we do all of these things. And this was their boast. This was constantly their boast. If you turn with me over to Galatians 3, we read this this morning. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, Paul is adamant about this very thing. That has taken place because there were those in their midst, in the midst of the churches of Galatia, the region, who were promoting a different gospel, a gospel which was no gospel at all. In verses uh, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, we read this. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness indeed would have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The problem with the Jews is that they were trusting in their virtues and their morals and their all these other things that they thought that they were deserving of the benefit of God. And, and Paul would say, not a chance. The law is not contrary to the promise. Rather, the law prepares us to see the need for the promise so that like Abraham, we would cry out to God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and God would look upon the sinner and be merciful to him. Stop rejecting Jesus. He's your only hope. And the law, as good as it is, it cannot save. Be it ever so noble and esteemed, uh, it cannot save you. So the apostle pointed the brother, or pointed the brethren rather, to believe upon Jesus Christ, because in Him alone are we freed from the debt of sin. And this is where they must go. And this is the message he preaches everywhere he goes. You can understand why they would be so upset with him in Ephesus. He's killing our idolatry. <laughs> we're turning away from silver and gold and we're looking to Jesus Christ. And this is where I would urge you, friends, and this is the message we, we need to take to the world. This is the message the early church needed and this was the message that was preached. This is the message that advances the kingdom of God. Not a message of pick yourself up by your bootstraps and do better but rather see that Christ is all that we could ever hope for, and he is our only hope. But he gives this caution. He gives this caution. Verse 40 uh, and 41, Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. 
Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which will never believe, you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Friends, because there is no middle ground regarding Jesus Christ, you cannot afford to reject him. You cannot afford to be indifferent to him. Here, the apostle quotes from Habakkuk 1.5. In the days of Habakkuk, there, were much, there was much injustice in Israel. And here he quotes Habakkuk. And those who would not heed the, apostle, or the prophet's words... Uh, the Chaldeans were prophesied to come and destroy them. And so here Paul takes this, this warning, and, and in the same vein of thought, if you reject what, what Jesus Christ has done, there's only one thing that a person can count upon, and that is to be judged for your sins by the enemies of God. You will be judged, and you will die and perish in your sin. And that's the message of the gospel. That here's this wonderful hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Will you believe in Jesus Christ today? Or will you reject him? If you reject him, you will perish. And the idea of perish, we heard of this giant earthquake, and I'm sorry we didn't pray for it this morning in Morocco. Um, it wasn't terribly big, but apparently it was terribly destructive. It was a 6.8, which is a fairly large one, but it's not a 7, 8, 8, or 9. Over 2,000 people died um, in this earthquake. Terrible. This word for parish has the, the imagery of, of a town being leveled in an earthquake, and you see it no more. This is what becomes of those who reject Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you look to Christ and you believe upon him and know that he will wash you and save you and you will be freed from the things that have held your soul bondage. But to reject him is to reject him to your own harm. Do not reject Jesus Christ. Rather embrace him and love him and know him uh, because he is good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word and thank you for this sermon that has been recorded for us. That reminds us that the gospel is about the work you have accomplished through your son. And it is not about what we have done for you. The religions of this world would have us, Lord, believe that by recommending ourselves to you, that we would find favor in your eyes. What an insult to your holiness. What an arrogant presumption on our part to think that we could rise to your holiness. Salvation is of the Lord. And the things that are impossible for us are those things that you do and have done. Father, we pray that as a congregation we would rest in your gospel. That our boast would be in Jesus Christ alone who was raised and who has conquered. And we ask, Father, that this would be the gospel that would be preached and it would be the gospel that we talk about again not sharing what we are and what we do our decisions but sharing what Christ has done we thank you again for your loving kindness to us and thank you for your word bless this congregation I pray and bless your gospel going forward that the name of Jesus Christ would be magnified 
We ask this in his name. Amen.